As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? I've had one of these weeks this week where, where so little has happened that I'm worried I've got nothing to talk to you about on the podcast because I'm, I'm guessing you're not watching um, Married at First Sight Australia. Um, au contraire. <laughs> what? You're a Mafsa fan. Absolutely. Wow. So, so tell me, which marriage do you think stands the best chance? Um, I would say Kylie and Jack. Yeah, yeah. You almost had me fooled. There's nobody called Kylie and Jack, is that right? Probably is, although it being Australia, it's probably called Jacko. But mm. I'll tell you, I really enjoyed that brief moment where I allowed myself to entertain the thought, despite all evidence, that Ed Miliband could be enjoying Married at First Sight Australia. I should have been more sort of, I should have been more, you know, deadpan, shouldn't I? Yeah, you should have committed to the bit. I should have committed. Yeah, I should have. Uh, that's, that is a really good point. You know how I said to you last week that I'm getting more optimistic because the days are getting longer? Honestly, it really struck me this week. It was 5.30 and it was still light. And I mean, I don't want to sound a like obsessive about it but it makes such a difference to my mood i was thinking that when i'm significantly older are you about to tell me that you're going to be one of those old retirees who goes and lives in boca vista gated community in florida possibly possibly is that a place i think you just made that up does it exist boca vista i think boca vista might be where jerry seinfeld's fictional parents live in the sick oh yeah yeah yeah. places like that in florida i'm not going to go to live in mar-a-lago i promise you (laughs) um uh, 
I don't think we'd be. I don't think he would be a. Um, I don't think he'd be a good neighbour. I mean, I know what you mean about not much happening. You know, one thing which I the maybe it's a confession, maybe it isn't. Um, I've got really into the music of Taylor Swift during the lockdown. You have mentioned this to me. How, how did this happen? Well, like everything in my life, or many things in my life, it happened because I was listening to another podcast, not shouting Runciman in the shower, but uh, uh, Pod Save America. And John Favreau said that his wife was in the top 0.1% of people listening to Taylor Swift on Spotify. And I, you know, because I'm quite a sort of nerd for the numbers, I was immediately sort of quite amazed at what if I could tell you that piece of information, which I suppose is just surveillance capitalism, basically. But um, and so I don't know. I thought, well, maybe I should listen to Taylor Swift. And so now I listen to Taylor Swift every morning she tends to be the same loop and my children insist on turning it off <laughs> you, you must be the only middle-aged parent in a family where the kids are saying please turn taylor swift off i think it's it's usually the other way around is that right do you know what my favorite one is yes favorite song i think the last great american dynasty do you know that song i don't to my shame i have to say i'm not terribly familiar with her oeuvre beyond shake it off shake it off i haven't come across that one so it's the goal by this time next year, for you to be in the top 0.001% of Taylor Swift listeners on Spotify. Well, look, I, I'm so competitive that you're probably right <laughs> that I, I'm going to definitely, you know, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and sort of beat the, you know, beat beat the whatever. Wow! And, and can you tell us what is it about Taylor Swift that you've latched onto? I just quite like the music, and also I don't. I think there's something about the world at the moment where. I don't really want to have more politics first thing in the morning. So out with Billy Bragg and Chumbawamba and in with Taylor Swift. Well, more like the Today programme or a podcast or something. I think I just need a bit of... By the way, the cold showers are making a massive difference. And are you listening to Taylor Swift whilst you're having this bracing cold shower? Uh, well, I can't really hear it in the shower, but I mean, definitely Taylor Swift is sort of part of my mornings. And are you singing your little heart out in there, singing this Taylor Swift song about Dynasty? No, I'm not really singing. I don't think that would be... I think that would really offend my children. Uh, anyway, I've painted, you, I've painted you a rather too kind of open picture of my mornings. Not at all. It's, it's wonderful and uh, illuminating. I think I might get you a Taylor Swift poster for your bedroom wall. No, I don't think I want a poster. It's not, we're not at that stage yet. A Taylor Swift case for your phone? Nope, nope, nope. All right, all right. Uh, shall we talk about what we're talking about in today's episode? This week, Jeff, we're asking whether an idea called participatory budgeting, or PB to its friends, can help rebuild trust in democracy. Participatory budgeting involves handing control of parts of public budgets over to citizens who then decide how money is spent. It began in the city of Porto Alegre in Brazil in 1989 and was seen as a way to involve citizens in decisions and ensure that public money went to the communities that needed it most. Since then, it has spread to thousands of towns and cities all over the world, including Paris, Madrid and New York. We're going to be talking to Shari Davis, who runs an organisation called the Participatory Budgeting Project in the US. Back in 2014, Shari launched a youth participatory budgeting process in Boston, which gave young people control of a million dollars of the city's budget. Then we're talking to Brazilian political scientist Rebecca Abers about the origins of participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre and what the city's experience shows. And finally, we're talking to Jez Hall, who's been promoting participatory budgeting in the UK for two decades. We'll be asking Jez 
how he became such a big fan and why PB has taken off in Scotland in the last few years. And our cheerful person this week is, I think, legendary filmmaker at this point, Adam Curtis, who's going to be talking about his new series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. What's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine is a PB as well. There's a good segue. In my new running shoes, which have taken some time to bed in, I managed to run a 5K in 23.35. 23.35. What was your previous PB? Well, my previous PB in the other shoes was 23.50-something. But to be honest, I hadn't really... That seemed like a f- sort of freak of three or four months ago, and I hadn't really ever got back close to that. So I think the, I think if you, you, if you sort of count the shoes, I probably... You know, it slightly swings and roundabouts, but well, nevertheless, shoes, you're saying the shoes could have saved um, twenty seconds off off your, your best ever, but more typically thirty seconds. No, I think the shoes could have given me a couple of minutes. Well, I think I think they say I think it's like a few percent. So I don't quite know on wow. the shoes. They've not got little wheels in them like those shoes toddlers have, have they? No, they're a bit like pogos. It's a bit like being on a pogo stick, but you know, the data doesn't lie. The data never lies anymore because there's nothing worth lying for. Right. Um, what about you? What's your um, what's your well, PB? My, my reason to be cheerful, I, I had one and then I just heard that little blast of books fizz and that might be my new yeah. reason to be cheerful. Yeah, make your mind up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come on, you've really, come on, you've really got to speed <laughs> it right, up. Okay. And then you've got to slow it down. Any more? No. You want me to whip my long skirt off Go to on. reveal a mini skirt? Perhaps not. Um, no. I was going to say, every Friday morning, I take my son to an occupational therapy appointment. And uh, because of the current situation, we go in a taxi. And he always has these sort of conversations with the taxi driver he really loves talking to the taxi drivers that's good and your genes he's the antithesis of me yeah exactly this morning he was telling the taxi driver that there is a new baby giraffe at whipsnade zoo which we'd learned about and then the taxi driver told us a great story which is my reasons to be che- reason to be cheerful which is he said he used to pick a guy up and take him to work every day for years and years and years eight o'clock every morning and on his journey to the office the guy would always ask to stop in the middle of Regent's Park in London, by the giraffe enclosure, and just sit and watch the giraffes for a few minutes on his way to work every day. That is a brilliant story, isn't it? Great. Just think of some some businessman who's you know going off in a, a, a taxi, just saying to the driver, "Oh yeah, if we could just pull over here." And he says he picked him up every day, and it's you know the drill, and he'd just sit and look at the giraffes before he got started with his workday. What a great story! Yeah. I do love a good giraffe. Honestly, giraffes are one of my favourite animals. I mean, they're like real top three, I would say. Maybe maybe top. Well, wh- why don't you reroute your jog through Regent's Park past those giraffes? I mean, it might shave a bit off your personal best. I might just do that. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, to talk about participatory budgeting... In practice, I'm delighted to say that we're joined from Oakland, California, by Shari Davis, who is Executive Director of the Participatory Budgeting Process in the US. She was previously Director of Youth Engagement and Employment in Boston and launched Youth Lead the Change, a pioneering youth participatory budgeting project. And she is a 2019 uh, Obama Fellow, which we're very uh, jealous of. Shari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with y'all. Now, in a fantastic TED Talk that um, we encourage people to watch and we'll provide a link to, 
you describe yourself as a recovering government employee. <laughs> Perhaps you could start by telling us about how you first got involved in PB uh, when you were working in Boston, and what's the story behind the Youth Lead the Change project? Yeah, well, first of all, I say recovering government employee affectionately with a shout out to the folks that, that work in government. It's hard, and it can be confusing, but my hope is that the people that work in government are your community members, your neighbors, the same folks that you would run into in, in the supermarket or at the park or in the places that you visit. And my hope is that these are all members of, of your community that you feel comfortable with. And if that's not true, then, then it really feels like there's a, a disconnect there. And I think that the part of my story that brought me to government was experiencing that disconnect. I was a young person growing up in the city of Boston that stumbled into a karate program at a community center. And I was taught by a a black immigrant police officer. And I didn't necessarily think about this person as a police officer. I thought about them as my martial arts instructor only. And that's where I started really asking some questions about like, hmm, why is my relationship with this police officer so different than so many other people in my community? And I really started questioning that. And I found myself in a summer job, magically working for the city. I don't know if you're familiar with summer employment programs, but I I just kind of randomly got matched to the mayor's office. And I loved it. And at the end of six weeks, they were like, thank you for coming. It was really nice to meet you. This is the end of your summer employment program. And y'all, I just kept coming back. I was like, how could you run the city without a 16-year-old's perspective? Like, how how could you develop youth programming? Like, in the six weeks that I was here, I was the only young person in the the meeting. So how, how how could you figure it out? And they eventually said, you know what, you're right, maybe... Maybe, maybe you should work here. And I said, well, maybe like a lot of other people, like young people that come from my neighborhood should work here. And that became my focus and entry point in government. And so in my early 20s in the city of Boston, I was working closely with Mayor Menino at the time to really think about our youth engagement strategy, our youth leadership strategy in the city. And he said, Sherry, come up to my office. I want to tell you about something. And I run up to the mayor's office and he says, well, I want you to run a participatory budgeting process where young people decide on a million dollars of our capital budget. And I said, yes, sir, absolutely. That sounds great. And I ran right down to my desk and Googled what participatory budgeting was. And <laughs> I found out it was an opportunity like no other where young people would have a chance to decide how actual dollars, a million dollars of our capital budget would be spent. I never had that opportunity as a young person. And what we ended up doing was launching a process where 12 to 25 year olds actually made a decision and continue to make decisions about Boston's budget and how they can shape it to meet their needs. Um, And it's been phenomenal work. Let's get on to that then. How did the process, um, how did the process uh, work? Yeah. Well, generally, and no two participatory budgeting processes are the same, but how it works is like this. First, the steering committee comes together to kind of write the rules, to think about eligibility, criteria, how is this going to work, who are, who are we outreaching to, and what are the goals of this particular budgeting process? And as a reminder, PB, participatory budgeting, is a, 
is a democratic approach to really thinking about how we spend public money and how we make decisions together. So that steering committee writes the rules transparently and is a body of community members that puts that thinking together. And then we move on to the next phase where we collect ideas, hundreds, if not thousands of ideas on how to spend a pot of public funds or tax dollars. After we collect those ideas, community members come together and workshop them into concrete proposals. We call this proposal development. Once projects are vetted, every project that is approved and makes it onto the ballot will really happen if community votes on it. So then we move to the vote phase where community far and wide is able to participate in the vote. And so a vote can last for a week or two. And unlike a traditional local or national election, everyone can participate. And can you paint us a picture of some of the projects were funded in Boston and the ones that perhaps you're most proud of and what impact it had on the young people in the city? So often people say to me, well, aren't you afraid that folks are just going to ask for like an ice cream truck? And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't know. My experience with young people is that they're literally brilliant and wildly innovative. And uh, I don't think that that will happen. Years ago in Boston, and this is way different than the COVID reality that we're in right now. But one of the projects that made it onto the ballot was increased Wi-Fi access. Young people in Boston are really smart. They said, we need more Wi-Fi access for young people in key and strategic places where they don't exist and historically and traditionally excluded or marginalized neighborhoods so that when we are moving across the city, we can connect with each other, find jobs, find things to do and participate in community in ways that are healthy. So that's one example of a project that I've been really excited about and proud of. A couple others really quick are uh, making parks more accessible for people with all bodies and really thinking about parks from a disability lens, but from a broad community lens. And this is young people's thinking. Um, another that I thought was really cool was young people said, look, there's a department that creates and generates all sorts of youth opportunities. And that's great, but we just need like an app like a mobile application that allows us to identify job opportunities, free things to do, learn about um, things that we can share with each other, um, information, resources at a library, for example. And that made it onto a ballot a couple of years ago in Boston and is another example of innovative thinking that young people have where they're kind of like creating jobs and opportunities for more young people with the ideas they're putting forward. You now um, lead the participatory budgeting project. Uh, t tell us, tell us a bit about what that is and and what kind of um, processes you're supporting. What we do is empower people to decide together how public money is spent, and we focus on the United States and Canada, but we work with partners from across the world. My favorite thing about our approach at PVP is that. We really support community members in owning and leading what this looks like when hopefully an agency, an institution, an organization adopts PB, it marks a change in the way that they do business. And so our approach is really to support people and build capacity, whether they're in government or in community, to do exactly that, that community-led decision-making. And it's something you're taking into schools as well. Talk, talk to us a little bit about how, how it uh, transposes into the schools. So much so 
I think in schools, and I've talked about young leaders in the past, we've talked about youth lead the change and how important that was. One of the beautiful things about PB is that I think it's an opportunity to recognize that young people are not future leaders. They're leaders right now, and they need to be resourced in their leadership. And PB does exactly that and gives them the opportunity to decide. So one of my favorite places where we see PB, one of my favorite institutions, is actually schools. One of my um, favorite projects right now is in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know if you all have seen this, but what they're doing at Phoenix Union High School District in this moment is saying, you know what? Maybe we need to reimagine our approach to safety. And what it has been, has been a heavy investment in school policing. We know that that's not the best and safest approach for this school community to approach safety. So what they decided to do was change their approach and take that $1.3 million that they were exclusively investing into school police officers and say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to engage students, parents, and teachers and a participatory budgeting process to define, reimagine safety, and invest in those things that they decide makes them feel safe collectively. And young people are so dynamic in this conversation. It's, it's not only fascinating, but I'm learning a lot. And I know that teachers and parents in the broader school community will be better for um, this important work. And so to answer your question, it's absolutely happening in schools in ways big and small. Shari, we have something on the podcast called The Jeffocracy. It sees me installed as a, a benign supreme leader, um, but, but I, beyond living a life of unimaginable wealth and luxury, I'm, I'm very into handing the power to the people, apart from to take away the wealth and luxury. In, in terms of participatory budgeting, how do you build this into government and local government? Well, I'm excited that the Jeffocracy is really considering and reimagining what leadership is and what community-led decision-making is so that the Jeffocracy is the most inclusive um, example of democracy that we've seen. And, and I think the, the work here is to kind of build and stitch a fabric that of government that changes and grows and shifts with people as people change, grow and evolve. And I think the best way for us to do that is to begin immediately um, getting resources into people's hands and allowing them to decide. And so I think it's going to look like some community info sessions with some clear decision-making elements um, and then really a launch of some robust participatory democracy. It's going to be a busy day for you on day one. Day one is going to be a little bit busy, but day two and three are going to only going to get better. Shari, it's a, it's a very optimistic vision that you paint. It's a, a great idea. Um, thank you so much for telling us about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for having me. I, I'm feeling cheerful. So to give us a, an example from history, um, we're going to talk to Rebecca Abers, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Brasilia in Brazil. Hello, Rebecca. So, so you've written a lot about the origins of participatory um, budgeting in Brazil. How, how did it first come about in the city of Porto Alegre? This was back in the 1980s. So maybe you could tell us a bit of the story and just paint a picture of how, how things were in Brazil at the time. 
the story is basically this. Um, in Brazil, was going through a process of democratic tra- transition. And so in 1988, there was the first round of uh, elections in which the new left-wing parties started to be able to win elections after the first time in many, many years. And in 1980, sometime before that, the Workers' Party had been created. And the Workers' Party was uh, a new sort of left party. And they didn't really have quite a clear idea of what they would do if they ever won an election because it seemed very unlikely. But the general belief was, well, a Workers' Party administration would be committed to both redistribution, its more socialist side, and radicalization of democracy participation. And that those two ideas would have to somehow would be the, the sort of what, what any Workers' Party government would, ha- would do. In 1988, there were municipal elections and the Workers' Party won um, 36 municipalities in Brazil, including the city of Sao Paulo, the giant city of Sao Paulo, and also the city of Porto Alegre, which is not so giant. It was about a million people at the time, a little more than a million people, um, but was also a big city. And um, suddenly they were, you know, have to deal with this, how to, how to implement this project. And basically what happened was that at the beginning and that they, they, they arrived in office in 1989, 1990 was the first year that the government was really decided to commit itself to the participatory budget because it became clear after a little bit of time in, in the municipal administration that the municipal budget was a thing that the government had control of. All the other stuff, you know, the economy and giant questions that the left wanted to resolve, you know, wasn't wasn't really in their control. And so the budget, and especially the, the, the policy began with a focus on small-scale infrastructure, like health posts and paved streets and and putting in sewage lines in, in, in um, poor neighborhoods and that kind of things. So I, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it was a lovely story, the 1990s part of it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm really curious then to, to know about what that looked like in practice. How did they go about involving people? You know, what were the, what were the first decisions that were enacted? Can you just mm-hmm. tell us a bit about the, the history mm-hmm. of that and the, you know, okay. the, the, how, how the people became involved and, and what it did for the people living in Porto Alegre? Basically how they did it was this. They divided up the city into 15 and then later 16. I think now there's 17 you know, the regions of the city, basically, a regional distribution and held meetings, open meetings in these cities. People would come together, say what they wanted, say what they wanted most and what they wanted, you know, what, what their general priorities were. And they would elect um, people to two different kinds of forums, uh, a, a regional budget forum, which would have, you know, 20, 30 people who would then sit down and try to work out a list of projects in the order of the projects. And they also, um, at big assemblies, they would elect members to the municipal budget council, which had two members for each region. So basically, you had an, a citywide council that would oversee the process and decide things like how much money should each region get for sanitation, how much money should each region get for, uh, uh, you know, paving streets or for building a health post. And then within the region, having that amount of money, they would decide how to order their priorities for those things. And usually, and the priority that they gave to, if they thought that health posts were more important this year than, sanita- than sanitation, they would get more money for health posts. There was kind of an interaction between these two. In the second four years, um, they decided to expand the process to include thema- what they called thematic forums, where you could have discussions like you know, urban planning infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, things that were not just so local. And these forums basically followed the same ritual. They would have 
local meetings and, and then they would elect people to the municipal budget council and they had this interaction between these forms that would last all year and the budget council. Every year at, a, at, a, at the end of August, the government would publish what was called an investment plan, which was the government, which was the result of all these negotiations. So it was when it's made uh, clear what the government, what, what was decided in the forms and what the government committed to doing with the budget that it predicted for the following year. And this is the this is the crucial thing. There was an investment plan that you could check the following year whether the government did what it said. If you had to point to things that materially changed as a result of this experiment in the first decade or so, what's the sort of top things or thing, thing or things that you would point to? There were two parts of the participatory budget. One part were these small-scale community um, projects. And then there was these thematic forms that dealt with more uh, big citywide policies. I would say that the part that really impacted the city was the, dis- the greater distribution of the small-scale community um, infrastructure. It was in this small-scale part of the participatory budget that citizens really felt that they were participating in the city government. They knew how the decision got made. They knew that if their street wasn't paved this year, it was because somebody else's street was ended up winning in the decision that they made within their community for who was going to get there first. You know, so they had a, they had an ability to understand the decision making process and participate. Since the policy worked, uh, more and more poor neighborhoods participated more over time. If you look over time, which where where more participants are coming from, it shifts from the center of the city to the periphery over those that first 10-year period. And with that, the money starts to shift too, because more people participate, more money starts to go towards uh, to, to the poor neighborhoods. There's been substantial research showing that there was a real redistribution of public funds in, in, a, in a country where hardly ever uh, does the, is the government used for, uh, uh, especially city uh, funds used for the poor. It was systematically uh, redistribution towards the poor neighborhoods. What's happened more recently and why did the process decline? So the PT, the Workers' Party, had, um, was re-elected three times. It had four four-year administrations. During the first three periods, that the, this model was constantly evolving and was very successful. But in the fourth period, the fourth administration, there was, I remember because I, um, I was invited, I believe, in 2001, I went to a meeting that was sort of, uh, uh, held by the municipal government. And the theme was, how can we continue advancing with the participatory budget? It feels like it has stagnated. We, ha- we can't figure out now where to go from here. The system of small scale participation is very effective, but so many, most of this net town is now paved and has all their things that they need. And there was a kind of feeling that the cycle had reached its exhaustion of the, the policy had done what it could. And that the next step trying to figure out how to get citizens to participate in discussions about larger infrastructure projects, they hadn't really figured out a model for doing that. If you look at the numbers, over time, the participatory budget declined as a par- as an, a, in importance within the budget of the, of the city. And it kind of increasingly became a space where, you know, the government could do stuff that was outside of the budget and also could cherry pick, you know, decide to do this thing, but not that thing, which, of course, if you're cherry picking, you can um, favor your friends and everything. I've checked, Rebecca, and I think that I visited Porto Alegre in 2003 and 2004. I uh, fear that I might have cursed. I actually attended the World Social Forum and wrote, about, and wrote about it. So I think it was me, basically. <laughs> uh, well, look, Rebecca Abers, it's been a real pleasure uh, to speak to you, and you've really um, shed a lot of light on the Porto Alegre experience. Thank you so much. 
Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Nash, talk about participatory budgeting and the experience in the UK. I'm glad to say we're joined by Jez Hall, who's Director of Shared Future and Coordinator of PB Partners, a group promoting participatory budgeting in the UK. Jez, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Um, Maybe you can start off by telling us what's the story of how you got involved in participatory budgeting. Basically, 20 years ago, I was a community activist in Manchester, and I'd been trying with many other people to influence a a local regeneration fund called the SRB. um, And we had been fighting to get community representation on that board for a long time. And we eventually did it. And the the head of the regeneration said, um, with three things, we don't like how you're organising like union people to try and control the agenda. Um, And we don't vote here. So that we don't, uh, we kind of knew that we hadn't any way of voicing our opposition um, to that process. And the third thing he said is we spent all the money last year and it was a bit of a frustration. Um, um, But at the same time, I was asked as a community activist to go to Brazil, to Porto Alegre, to learn about participatory budgeting there. And I saw it as such a different kind of way of working to the kind of stale consultation engagement processes and the sort of, you know, aren't you lucky to be in our space type approach that we had in the UK um, and really energised. So I became a bit passionate about it and I've since then been promoting it in the UK as hard as I can alongside earning a crust and and I've just met some really brilliant people. Now, if it's not, if it's not unfair pressure, then set our pulses racing by giving some examples of what you've seen and been involved with in the UK on participatory budgeting. Right. Well, so the first big process was about 15 years ago in Bradford, and there was a participatory grant making of about £300,000 in £10,000 lots. And they basically got about 100 community activists from across Bradford together in a room and said, if you had £10,000, tell us how you would spend it. And people stood on a platform and made their presentations. And then everybody in the audience voted on who should get the money. And and everybody was sharing their ideas. And it was quite emotional. It was almost like a drama, a sort of theatre of politics. And then everyone voted. And at the end of the process, they said, and anybody here who's been given some money, would you like to give some back to help some other people get funded? And they got £30,000 handed back from the group, of, from the audience, to enable three more projects to take part. And I did some analysis, just counting who was in the room and, and who was speaking. And, and the only sort of barrier to getting money is if you spoke posh because people realised you could get the money from somewhere else. And I thought, this changes how you would normally find grant-making. Um, and and the other thing is I met somebody who had stood on that platform, probably for the first time they'd spoken about their community three years later. And I said, how, do you remember that event where we gave out £300,000 in one afternoon? How did that – what do you think of it? And she said it was terrifying but magnificent. And I thought, wow, that's a really different response to being involved in in public affairs and and processes like this. So it it connected emotionally as well as just actually got the money out there in a fair way. That's brilliant story. And that was 15 years ago. And any other ones that you've been involved in since then? So I saw another one 
maybe 10 years, 15 years later, that was in, in Manchester. It was about tackling organised crime and it was community members on a tough housing estate coming forward with ideas, with the police behind them, sort of saying, you know, we want to hear ideas about how to tackle crime. And, and three 15-year-old transgendered young people got on that platform and said, we're transgendered and we're in your community. And, and they didn't get the money but they did get a huge amount of applause and affirmation. And that was a big step for them to voice their, their views. But there was another group who did get stand forward and they did get their £3,000. It was three women who were looking for money to set up a, 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 a domestic violence project on that estate. And they did get their £3,000 and they did then get another £50,000 from the police to deal with this. So, I've got many stories like that I could tell of how it's it's really switched people on and given them a sense of agency and voice and power. And both those stories, um, I was thinking about the participation and how you get people involved who aren't the people who would typically involve themselves in, say, you know, local council meetings. Is Is that a real key to making it work properly, bringing in different voices and how do you do that the way i think about it often is about this concept of positive deviance there are people who are deviating positively in their community about how to make change happen and they don't quite like talking about it often because you know they feel like they're going to be ridiculed or even excluded from their community so pb offers a different way to engage but also you don't have to write well because a lot of it is about making your presentation verbally or just standing in front of people. So it opens the doors that traditional grant making really puts up lots of barriers about. What's the scale of involvement of people compared to normal decision making? Is it about scale and depth? In other words, more people involved, but crucially with much, much more control and engagement than you'd normally get? It really varies with scale. So I remember years ago in Manton, which is a small mining village, and they would be, this is long, this is the days of new labour, so I mean, crumbs, that's like real old history. But um, they were getting more people voting in the PB than they were getting voting in local elections. We often see 200 people come to a village hall to vote on how to spend five, ten, twenty thousand pounds But in Scotland recently... We've been getting seven, eight, ten thousand people participating um, online and in and, and through different mediums on on spending more significant budgets. So, tell tell us about that. Tell us about that project. Well, uh, across Scotland over the last few years, they've really got onto PB, and they now have a commitment that one percent of all local authority spending should be spent through PB. And that sounds small beer. But actually, that's £100 million a year that is going to be spent through a democratic process, if it was realised fully, where citizens suggest ideas, think them through, they're sort of filtered through, making sure they're feasible, and then you vote for them online. So there's been loads of experiences across Scotland. Um, There's one, for example, young people in North Ayrshire, where they had a budget of £60,000 to do youth related projects. And, and they got something like 75% of all the young people who were eligible to vote. And I think that's like seven or 8,000 out of a population of about 10 who could vote, who participated and made their choices 
But here's another really interesting thing. In Scotland, they generally now are having 11-year-olds allowed to vote in these processes on how to spend taxpayers' money, sometimes down to seven. And here's one wow. I'm going to put to you. Why don't schools give 1% of their budget to their pupils to spend through their school councils? Because on average... How interesting. £70,000 per school per year given to the school council to to develop projects to make the school a better school. What are the limits of participatory budgeting? I mean, how far could it go? You mentioned the Scottish experiment, 1%. You mentioned it tends to be sort of smaller scale things. What's your thoughts on that? I think you need to have really clear expectations about what is possible. So, you know, we talked, well, here's a limit. Paris is now spending 5% of its um, budget for in public investment. That's capital spending through PB. So that's, that's 100 million euro a year. So that's significant amount, but it's still only 5% of the total amount being spent on, on public investment in, the, in, in capital projects. So I think you can go very big. And I get over 100,000 people participating in Paris's PB processes every year. She um, was. And, you know, you go to a city like Tallinn in Estonia. I mean, it's not exactly massive, but they've just done a PB that's finished with um, 800,000 euros um, being spent, you know, again, through online civic tech. So people are voting online rather than face to face, but getting 20, 30,000 people participating who, you know, it's an additional channel. It's not meant to replace, you know, representative democracy or citizens assemblies or whatever else. But it's another channel to to connect. I mean, I'm infused, Jeff, by this. I'm, I've known about this. I've known about this for twenty years. My familiarity with it somehow didn't has sort of has kind of made me more sceptical. What do you I mean? Well, I, I, I'm, th- there's a problem that politicians. I think you were you were a politician once, I believe. But politicians, yeah, no. <laughs> are sometimes a bit wary about giving away. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know things can go wrong, and and you know you're, you're you're the big man, and you've got to make these choices on behalf. That's why people have elected you. So there are some blockages around. Are we talking? Uh, you know, are are citizens capable of making difficult decisions? The point is, it's like a what would you call it? It's a disruptive technology that enables us to think differently about what democracy is meant to look like. Somebody called it reoxygenating democracy, and I think that's it. And it's a. I feel reoxygenated, Jeff. Yeah. Definitely. Now, now talking of um, of non democracy, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is certainly not a democracy. Which is Jeff as the sort of benign uh, ish ruler. Imagine that Jeff appoints you the minister for PB, um, and he's going to be pretty hands off, uh, and he gives you sort of you know. A relatively blank check what what what's what are you gonna what would you do where would you start where would you what would your sort of fantasy be the first thing i'd do would be to invite some politicians from overseas to meet with some politicians here and get them to understand that pb is a good way of being seen as a good politician so learn from what's been happening elsewhere is the first one the second one is to tell the people the bean counters in the finance department, that there's been lots of international studies that have shown that where PBs happened over years, they've both improved the, the performance of government, but also improved tax take. 
So there's lots of work where people are more prepared to pay their taxes if they think their country is working or listening for them. So there's been positive incentives in terms of making people feel. So that's that's an evidence that you trust your government if you're willing to pay your local taxes. And the third thing I would say is you need to start investing in actually doing this stuff and, and put some money into something um, like a, a, a project that is actually going to stimulate it. So learning and development. So those are the three things. I'm totally thought this is like the sortition episode all over again, <laughs> Jeff, which is that I, I knew about it. But I'd sort of become, I don't know. I just needed Jez to bring it alive for us. Well, look, Jez Hall, Jez We Can. We Can. Feels very very appropriate. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, enthusing us and setting our pulses racing. It's been a great pleasure. Let's change the world. So what did you think? Well, I think it's safe to say we both have puppy-like enthusiasm for this. Yeah. I've thought for a long time, if you don't treat people like idiots, they don't behave like idiots. Exactly. You too, you, you put it much better than me, but you're completely right. I, I, I really like it. I also just like it from a sense of, you know, democracy not being something that happens to you, um, something that you're involved yeah. in. And, and the examples we heard, I thought were so exciting. I, it reminds me of the episode we did on The State mm. with um, Sue Goss and Katie Kelly from East Ayrshire, uh, where she talked about some of these kind of projects that they've they've been doing, and uh, and I must say I found Rebecca's account of what happened in Brazil and like the paving of the roads and all of that really really sort of interesting and and, and Sherry you know very inspiring on Boston uh, and then uh, Jez we can on just the just the different projects that he's experienced I mean. It's one of these things, isn't it, that it sort of really, you know, it can sound quite dry and it really comes alive when people describe it. And as you, I think crucially what you say is about the sense of power it gives to people who, you know, who've so often felt that they have no very little power over what government does. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. 
Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. For our cheerful person slot this week, here to talk about his new films, which will be on BBC iPlayer from the 11th of February. They are called Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World. We're just delighted to talk to Adam Curtis. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. You too. I have, and I know Ed has. Uh, we've both been big fans of your work for, for many years, so it's exciting to talk to you about these new films. Before we do that, here is something I'm curious about you. Your films, as well as the ideas and themes, you create moods, and you do this using imagery and music, lots of brilliant footage and, and songs, which makes me think that you're moving through the world with your radar on all the time collecting this stuff. And I wonder, does that spill over into your real life? Do you have hoarding tendencies? Is your house full of stuff? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I, I'm not a hoarder. I'm, I suppose I'm what's called a grazer. I just spend my time listening to music. And also just, I don't know, often I pick up music because I like shopping as well, is you pick up music uh, in shops and things. I remember first hearing... Uh, Kanye West's uh, Runaway in a funny old shop up in Holloway and thinking, oh, that's great. That's how I do it. I just sort of move through life listening to music because I like music. That's really it. And like how if you ever talk to a stand-up comedian, they will tell you that people are always suggesting ideas for jokes and routines to them. Is that how it is with you and your friends? Are your friends constantly telling you about bits of news footage they've seen or youtube videos or tiktoks sometimes but i spend my lot of my time on tiktok guy finding st- i mean I, f- I find tiktok quite inspiring actually i think i, I was saying to someone that the other day that actually the thing about our age is that we're, we're in this funny moment between the big stories of the past and probably the uh, some great new big story of the future and we're living in this world we're just surrounded we're swimming in a sea of fragments of stuff and that actually what will be looked back at at our time as an expression of our time is TikTok and all the big posh novels will just be long forgotten. And, and, and it will be that moment of just people just swam in stuff. The films are available on iPlayer from this week. There are six of them. I've been lucky enough to have previews of four of them and love them. Here's what I think the idea is. Tell me if I've got this right. So if we are living in an age where the highest value is placed on how we feel as individuals, then what does that mean for how you structure and govern society? What does it mean for people who want to change it? And where does the power lie? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I, uh, the reason I did it is because over the last three or four years, I got puzzled by why, on the one hand, there were lots of people, both on the right and the left, wanting change, but at the same time, no change happened. I mean, I think the, the, the great dirty secret of the last four years is despite all the emotional chaos, 
actually nothing much really changed in terms of the structure of power or anything like that. I just wanted to do that. And I decided that if you are going to try and understand this age, as you just said, of the individual, where feelings are given primacy, you've got to examine what happened inside people's heads as ideas got in there, as much as you examine what is outside. And actually, the frame of the films is built around stories of a handful of people from all around the world, from largely the back half of the 20th century. But what was interesting to me is that these people were illustrative of the big idea that you're talking about, rather than instrumental to it necessarily. Exactly. Can you talk a bit about how you chose that structure and those people? That's exactly right. They're not... In the past, I've tended to do films about ideas and those who try and carry through those ideas. In this one, I was interested in that, but also in what happens to people who are acted upon by the ideas. I mean, I did it. I really started just because I was interested in a number of characters. What I noticed was that I was choosing people who, how would you describe it? They're ambiguous. You know, that they're not I think a lot of the problem with journalism at the moment is that it tends to divide work people into goodies and baddies. It simplifies them. And you know in your own life that's just not true. And I chose people who are ambiguous, like a guy called Michael de Freitas, who comes to Britain in the 1950s, works for a, a slum landlord um, in Notting Hill called Peter Rackman, um, and is a gangster and is really not a very nice person then sees something in Britain that the British don't really want to know and decides to become a revolutionary and start, and it is sort of a truth teller about us. So he plays a very ambiguous role in the, in the films. But I sort of thought, well, sort of that's more real. Maybe if I push it a bit that way, people might find it a bit more satisfying. As I understand it, Adam, your thesis, and forgive me for being oversimplifying here, is that we've lost the ability to think big about our society and how it needs to change. Is that your thesis? And if it is, why have we lost that? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that, I mean, I don't apologise for simplifying. It's what I do as well. It's, 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 it, and it's good to simplify because I think one of the real problems, one of the things that stops us thinking about the future is people saying, oh, the world is so complicated, you can't change it. I did. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And, and the reason is, is... a. a it's, it really started from a puzzlement that I had in the wake of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. After about 18 months in, I began to wonder why those people who didn't, who hated Trump and hated Brexit weren't coming up with a, an alternative that would persuade many of those who had voted for Trump and Brexit to change and, 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 and get a different kind of change, which, you know, as a progressive person, I would probably more approve of and, and like. I was puzzled by that. And I began to realise that really what was strange about our time is that we don't have, at a time when people do want change, no one is actually imagining other kinds of futures. And I decided just to go back into the past and try and look at the roots of all that. Some of it comes from the fact that um, the generations before us came out of the Second World War, having seen the horror that both big experiments of Nazism, fascism and state communism had led to. And they tried to create a society without big ideas, I think. And that was quite a noble idea, I think. But it also came out of the rise of an individualism, which I argue in the films started to eat away 
at mass democracy and the power of politicians to to use that collective power to change the world and to confront those in power, which is what I think mass democracy is is fundamentally about. So I was trace. I decided just to go and trace all the different routes, as opposed to what I've done in the past, where I've tended to focus on one set of ideas. I wanted to trace all the different streams that over the past 60 or 70 years have led to this sense of stasis, not just a stasis in society in itself, but in our minds. What I find so odd about our time is that there is this sense, there is a desire for change, but there is also a a sense of inevitability, not just on the right, but on the left as well, that, that the world is so complex, we just have to wait for the next horrible thing to come along when this horrible thing has gone. The, the, it's it's and it it's blocking our way to imagining different kinds of futures. Now I know it's difficult to do it. I was just and what I tried to show in those films is what happened when people did try and change the world and what went wrong. Why? Because if people want to change the world now, we should try and find out how you do it better. So so, so there's one aspect of this which is horror at what totalizing ideologies, Nazism, communism can can mean. But but actually, out of the Second World War, um, for example, we did think big mm. about how we needed to change yeah. things. So it, so it, so it makes one think that isn't it a free market ideology without sounding too simplistic about it that pushes you to think, look, there are big problems in the world, gross inequality, but they can't. We can't really do anything about them. We can sort of ameliorate them. Mm. But we can't really hope to do anything about them. And and so I think in a sense, you know, maybe what your films should make us think and, and uh, the situation is, it's not just about how we change things. It's about actually our capacity to change things that is that is in question. Yes, it's about it's a block on our imagination and our confidence that you can change things. And I think that's really fascinating. I think you put your finger exactly on it. The, the the dominant belief of our time in the back of many people's minds, millions of people's minds is, oh, look, the, look at what happened the last time they tried to change things. It all went badly wrong. Whereas actually, yes, some big stories did go horribly wrong. But as you just said, after the Second World War, there were extraordinary attempts, which we are living with the benefits of today. But also look at it. The, the whole eye of freedoms we have, the ability to vote and to actually challenge those in power, that came through big stories. America, for all its faults, also came through a big story. Uh, science, which has done this extraordinary thing over the last seven or eight months of, of creating a vaccine that's going to save millions of people's lives, that came from a big story. So we can make the world good as well as making it bad. And and really what I'm trying to show in the films is how that dark idea, that pessimistic thing that you pointed to, which is, oh, no, we can't, we, we can't change the world. It always leads to disaster how it came about. I think some of it comes from economics, that kind of economics, which it simply says, well, money is the measure of everything. And any idea of of transforming that always leads to disaster. I think it also comes out of a lot of modern uh, computer science, which out of complexity theory, which says, no, the world is too complex for human beings to ever understand. Only the machines and the data can understand that, which people like Dominic Cummings were trying to push very hard for. I think it also comes out of individualism, which is this sense that, no, we want to live in a world not being told by patricians like the BBC what to do, which is great and glorious, but when things go badly wrong, gets frightening because you're on your own. 
and and that leads to a sort of dark pessimism. And I also think it comes out of modern, a lot of modern psychology, which has been pushing the idea for the last 20 years that really fundamentally we're weak and vulnerable, much more weak and vulnerable inside ourselves than we think we are. And and I think together all that has has sort of meshed, mushed together into a sort of pessimism which and a fear of the future, when in fact, actually, really, I tell you what it's done. It's led to us continually imagining terrible things that are being done to us rather than imagining what we could do to make the world a better place. We've got trapped in a sort of dark version of imagining rather than imagining how we could change things. And I just want to show how that happened because I think we, we are living in quite, what's the word, empty times in a lot of the regimes around us, not just here in the West, but in America, in Russia and in China too. And people will want to move on. But to do that, we actually need to work out how you can break through those blocks to imagining different kinds of futures. Well, where possible, we we try and keep optimism front and centre on this podcast. And I think there's a note of optimism there to end the chat on. The films will be on iPlayer from February the 11th. The ones I've seen so far are brilliant. Thank you. As your work invariably is. Adam Curtis, thank you so much for talking to us. Pleasure. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro, and if people have got thoughts on this week's episode, they should they can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com on what Adam Curtis had to say or a really interesting discussion on PB, uh, or if people have got ideas for future episodes. I'm off to listen to some Taylor Swift. Oh, I am. Um, I should wish you uh, an early Happy Chinese New Year for for Friday. Ah, and what is it the year of? Uh, year of the Ox, which was the one I was I, the year I was born, which was seventy three, was with the, the one of the Ox as well. I always think it's quite a disappointing one. You know, like a cool one is a dog or a monkey or a platypus. Do you know what you are? No. What's what's nineteen sixty nine? Rooster. Year of the Rooster. Hmm. Interesting. I think we both got uh, duff Chinese years to be born in, really. Yeah. Roosters and oxes. Yeah, I think maybe. Anyway, gong, gong hei fat choi. And the same to you. I'd like to thank our guests, Shari Davis, Rebecca Abers, and Jez Hall. And thank you to Adam Curtis. Can't Get You Out of My Head is on BBC iPlayer from the 11th of February. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Uh, Joel Pierce does all the research, finds all these incredible guests for us, and he has been ably assisted by Jack Jeffrey, uh, along with Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Big shout out to uh, Left Foot Forward too as is, uh, is uh, customary at this point in the episode. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been PB. He's been or not PB. That is the question. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.